What's up, everybody? Matt Luzanaris here, your host and founder of The Good and the Dad. Hope everybody's doing well, and thanks for tuning in today. Um, got a good friend over here, John G. Johnny, how are you? I'm well, Matt. Awesome. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, just so everybody gets to know you a little bit here, um, John Z uh, become a good friend of mine the last couple of years. Um, his wife and my wife have been friends since uh, high school days. Um, John is first and foremost a, as always, uh, when I bring people on here, if they're a family person, he's a father to a beautiful mixed race daughter, um, a husband as well to uh, a mixed race uh, wife, and also uh, an assistant public defender here in Western New York. Um, so, John, thanks for for joining me today, and you know, I'm just going to ask you a couple questions here. We're going to kind of have a, an in-depth conversation about life, um, also, too, about how that life translates over into um, your work life as well, um, being a, an assistant public defender. As, as we know, that's a pretty difficult and very um, intriguing uh, job that you hold, and you know, definitely want to dive into that a little bit, too, today. So, uh, again, thanks for, thanks for joining me um, and taking the time out of your busy schedule. So, um, I'm going to dive in. I'm just going to go, go right into this. Uh, you know, I want to, I want to first focus on, on your life a little bit and just kind of, um, I want you to tell me and the listeners a little bit about your background, um, and how you grew up, where you grew up, um, and what that was like for you. Um, and then from there, we'll kind of, uh, you know, take some steps into, into the next steps of your life there. Sure. Sure. Well, I, I grew up, um, just North of the city of Detroit and, uh, born Michigan um have anyone seen the movie eight mile I grew up around 13 mile so oh, okay a little north of All uh, right. um you know blue collar working class area my mom's a public school teacher and uh my dad became an attorney later on in, in his adult life and I I met my wife Jenna in college in Ohio and we ended up back in near her hometown uh, Webster New York um up here so yeah. That's yeah. Talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, you bring up eight mile, you know, and, and I think anyone who listens to this or really anybody out there in general uh, knows the movie eight mile and knows, um, you know, what that's about and, you know, what Eminem's lifestyle was like, not just his lifestyle and, and how he went about his career and how he fell into his career, but more so just what his upbringing was, what his community was like. Um, you know, if you were just a few miles away from that, um, kind of, you know, bring us into that world a little bit. How did, <clears throat> how was it for you, um, as a kid, you know, and for me, I don't know necessarily what, you know, 13 mile is like, I don't know if it was a community of, you know, of just white people, of black people, Spanish people mixed, you know, all collectively, um, talk to me a little bit about that and, you know, what your childhood was like, you know, with school systems, um, you know, especially with your mom being in the, in the public school system as a teacher. Um, talk to me a little bit about that. So the, the Detroit, suburban Detroit area where I grew up, um, particularly on the, on the east side there, is probably one of the most segregated places mm. in America, even outside of the south. I, 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 you know, I, I imagine North 8 Mile most of my childhood was a hundred percent white or about as close to it as, you know, the census can, can track <laughs> South eight mile was, was a hundred percent African-American wow. uh, where, 
and you get you get segregation even further polarization in in the city in the city of Warren is there was a an interstate that cut through east west across the city and so if you if you lived north of the freeway the I six ninety six it was a pretty middle middle to working class south of the freeway though was was a, was a lot more um, a lot more impoverished is the best way of putting it. So like, you know, in the movie, Eminem lives in a trailer park and that park is a real place. It's actually right on eight mile. Okay. Um, and so as you go up from eight to nine mile, to 10 mile, um, the, the economic, the affluence level goes up. Um, and, and, and South Warren is, is the area where, where Eminem's from is, is really industrial. I mean, you got massive factories, you know, anyone who drives a, a Dodge Ram pickup truck, uh, maybe familiar because that's where they're that's where they're assembled, right? Okay. right in the neighborhood. Okay. Uh, where, where I grew up, you know, my parents were pretty devout Roman Catholics, and my father especially, and he uh, he really made it a point that he wanted us to go to Catholic schools, and that's what I did. Kindergarten through high school, I went to you know my neighborhood Catholic school. And uh, it was a, it was sort of a, a different up, upbringing because I only knew a handful of the kids in my neighborhood because the people I went to school with came from, you know, all over the area. So I I always kind of felt like I was, uh, you know, a bit of an outsider amongst my own my own neighborhood, my neighbors, and the kids in the street. Um, but yeah, that that was my experience growing up. Okay. Now, when you talk about um, you know, going to a Roman Catholic school. Um, cause for somebody like me, um, I don't really, I don't dabble into, pol- or sorry, not into politics. I don't dabble into religion. I'm not religious myself, mm-hmm. but when you talk about, you know, kind of, um, when you talk about the student body or the student population that you went to school with, would you say that when you, when you talk about it kind of being from all over, you know, are you saying that there were white kids, black kids, you know, and, and whatnot? Or was it more so just, you know, the white Roman Catholic religious um, individuals who were going to those to going to that school? So, so I think I think it falls sort of in the middle. OK, there. Okay. Um, as far as like religion goes and, and kind of adhering to religion and being devout, it, it was kind of lax. OK. Uh, it was ran by a, an order of um, of Catholic brothers. They're basically okay. they're kind of like monks, but they teach and they do things in the community. Um, and you know, the school was, I mean, lily white. I mean, literally. I think I graduated with one African American kid out of class, okay. one hundred and fifty. Um, That's what I was getting to right there. Then, yeah, okay. They all over. I mean, like all over the east suburbs of Detroit. Really, gotcha. Okay. That makes more sense. Okay. Awesome. Well, not awesome, but thanks for sharing that. So, um, so kind of, you know, obviously, you know, K to to 12th grade, um, that was your entire, you know, uh, education before moving on to college. So when, when you made that transition from, you know, finishing off at your, your Catholic school and then shifting over to your university in, in Ohio, was that, you know, and, and I don't know where in Ohio you went to school. I don't know what school you went to in Ohio. Um, talk about that transition. Was there a culture shock for you in that transition? Um, you know, was there, 
was it was there an, an eye-opening moment to you where you were like oh my goodness like <laughs> I've kind of been in this bubble my entire life or or what did you never feel that I feel um you know I could probably there's too many of those moments to even to even cover here on yeah on air yes yes and yes some more um now be honest I, I grew up in a, a very um my parents were not openly racist and in, in, in as much as they, they weren't you know using the n-word no one was flying a confederate flag but mm-hmm. it was just so embedded and ingrained in society and culture uh, amongst the the people i grew up around gotcha all, all just about all family members you know even people that considered themselves my grandmother she's uh, like a jfk liberal mm-hmm. the things that she that she says that you still it's like they make you cringe. I mean, it's, it's totally a different world. Um, and when I got to college, it was, I went to a small school in, in um, a very rural part of Ohio, Northeast of Columbus called Kenyon college. I went down there to play, uh, to play football. And, um, you know, growing up, my parents, uh, they maintained a pretty nice household and a pretty decent standard of living. I mean, I don't think we, we were, we were wealthy by any means, but mm-hmm. really wanted for anything. Yep. And, you know, and especially where I grew up in a pretty blue collar place, I always felt like we were, <laughs> we were kind of like, you know, a rich family, you know, yeah. to our neighbors. Yeah. And then I go, I go down to Kenyon and I, what, what turns out, I feel like Kenyon is sort of a safety school for people who didn't get into like uh, Amherst or Williams or gotcha. you know, the Ivy league type schools. <laughs> so that's okay. <laughs> I, I learned who, who really, really held all the cards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, when, so since you went there for football, did you, you know, did you find that, I mean, obviously, you know, when we look in this country, in the U.S. about, you know, when we're talking about football, you know, majority of the population and players that are playing that sport um, are coming from an African-American background or, you know, African-American descent. Um, yes, you have your, your pockets of, of white and Spanish and, you know, Native American um, but did you find at Kenyon College that you had a pretty uh, diverse team or a pretty big population of of um, outside cultures or outside ethnicities? Or did you, were you finding that, oh, wow, like, you know, we've got a decent amount of white kids on this team? Well, I'd, I'd say that our team was, was probably a little less diverse than, you know, like an NFL team or a, a, For sure, a yeah. major D1 college team. But I'd, I'll tell you, it's probably the most diverse group on campus okay um i don't know percentage wise but maybe like you know 70 percent white 10 percent uh you know uh spanish origin yep. or hispanic latino mm-hmm. and uh then the rest african-american gotcha and mixed race kids actually quite a few mixed race guys yeah yeah you know i kind of want to take a couple steps backwards i know we're kind of cruising through you know your kind of your timeline of your life, but I want to take a couple steps back real quick before we move forward and talk a little bit about, you know, I kind of want us to dig a little bit deeper into when you talk about your family roots um, and, you know, and, and you, you mentioned, yeah, no one's throwing around the N word and no one's flying around Confederate flags. Um, can you give me a little bit of insight on what, some of the things that you experienced or saw as a kid growing up or even as a, as a teenager or, you know, a young adult, um, you know, seeing growing up or hearing growing up, you know, you mentioned your grandma, 
Um, can you give us some, some examples and some things that kind of made you cringe um, or make you cringe looking back at it? Uh, that's the first part. And then the second part to that is um, how are you having discussions now in present day with family members who have those deep rooted um, beliefs or I don't know if you want to say values because I don't necessarily look at, you know, not saying that they're out, out outright racist, but those are values that some people live by, um, you know, how you kind of handle those types of uh, discussions and in, in, in ways in your life currently in present day. So it's it, it's sort of sort of a different, I guess different would be the way I would describe it, but there was always a narrative. Okay. And the narrative was that there had been in the city of Detroit, um, there was a, a civil disturbance. Most people call it a riot, but there was a civil civil disturbance in, I think, was it 1967? And uh, so 67 or 68, gosh, I should know that. And it caused a, like, probably the biggest wave of white flight in American history, maybe hmm. even to this day. And the city of Detroit, which had once been, you know, a third or fourth largest, fifth largest city in the United States, yep. lost a massive amount of its population. And basically all the white people moved out and they moved into uh, big suburbs like like Warren, where I grew up. And mm-hmm. the, the narrative was, and, and it, it's a false narrative, but the narrative was that, that these white folks had legitimate grievances and resentment because they had lost you know, property value and they were forced to sell and get out. And it just that, you know, essentially dehumanized black folks and then made them out to be, you know, I, I can remember the just constant references to the, you know, South eight mile of the city being, you know, as a subhuman hmm. or are crazy, it's dangerous. I mean, which to some degree there is, there is a lot of crime and there's For a lot sure. of yeah. societal issues and Detroit's got a fair share of those problems, no doubt. But, uh, you know, I'll give you a quick anecdote. My, my, my mother's father, and he's passed now, he was a, uh, a firefighter in the, another large suburb of Detroit, Sterling Heights. Okay. Uh, actually people jokingly refer to it as Ster- Sterling whites. Because it was, <laughs> oh it was boy. <laughs> until the 1980s, it was, and, and the first really integration of it was, was, through Iraqi immigrants, not even, you know, okay. anyone else, but anywho, he, uh, during the, the riots, during the unrest, he was called down and they called mutual aid to come and assist the city of Detroit firemen putting out fires. And he talks about, or used to tell a story about, he claimed he was being shot at by black Panther snipers. Hmm. Um, and, and you, you have tales like that and, and, and oral history and mythology like that coming from everywhere really yeah um and and it was just like the the white people that i grew up around they couldn't get past this like apocalyptic event that they view had you know had really altered the course of of their city and they used it sort of as a i don't want to say a cop-out but some type of justification or a rationalization for you know basically creating a very segregated environment mm-hmm. yeah no it's it's uh it's interesting to hear you know 
a perspective like that, um, you know, because we, we, when I say we, I, I talk about myself and, and, and other people, you know, who have either never been to Detroit, um, specifically when we're talking about, you know, your, your quote unquote city or, you know, where you come from, um, you know, you never, you never hear these stories. Um, typically you only hear stories. Uh, I mean, look, like for, to put it into perspective and, and to kind of in reality, it's like, think about like, you know, uh, the Tulsa massacres, you know, where up until this year, not many people knew anything about that, um, including myself, you know, and I think that it's important that we have these types of conversations and why we have these types of conversations so that people can educate themselves and understand history. And when I say history, I don't mean history that what you're learning in schools or when you pick up a history book, because you won't hear about these types of things, you know, when you, like, as you reference to like a civil disturbance, um, you know, that happened in the 1960s, um, that essentially white people felt like they were being flushed out, right? When it was actually quite the opposite of, of, you know, and I can't speak specifically for Detroit, but when we talk about um, oppression and, you know, racism and prejudice and bias, and, you know, especially back in the 1960s, you know, when we talk about redlining and we talk about all these different types of things, you know, people don't, it's either a people aren't willing to listen because they, because it doesn't affect them personally on a personal level. Right. Or B, um, people either aren't, this is kind of a two part answer. People aren't, um, seeking the education and right and, and asking the right questions or people aren't willing to share like the type of information that you're 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 sharing today you know um and i think it's really important because i not it's not about um you know focusing on you know whites versus blacks because it's yes the deep-rooted issues are quote-unquote whites versus blacks you know when we when we go back to the slave days and, and, and talk about oppression in, in in history in general um but to be able to you know break history so that it doesn't repeat itself right um and i think that's what's so important is that we talk about these messages and that we talk about um the underlining uh issues of what brought people to that point why you know families that are white or even families that are black even who when they talk about you know if you're talking about people who are coming from eight mile you know when they talk about people who come from 13 mile you know what do they say about the white people right um so i think it's it's important to kind of have those types of conversations so thank you for sharing that kind of stuff with me um to kind of go to my second part of the question that i had asked you initially before diving into this so in present day now um, you know, you being a dad, a husband, you know, being in a mixed race relationship, being, you know, having a mixed race daughter, um, what types of things, if, if you are having these types of conversations or being open with your family, um, are you guys having, you know, I, I would assume, and maybe I shouldn't assume because I know who you and Jenna are. Um, but for the, for my listeners and for people who are tuning in, um, you know, how are you having conversations with your family because of their, their roots and where they, where they came from, um, and the types of things that they grew up around, you know, 
for present day, how is how is this affecting them? You being in a mixed race relationship, having a mixed race daughter, um, and also too just the the social unrest in the social issues that are going on in present day. Well, I guess to, to answer your first part about being in a you know mixed race relationship, mm-hmm. um, I, I got to be honest, it has it hasn't been an issue. Um, really with my folks and with my family. Now my, my wife is a uh, Korean American mm-hmm. and I don't know if it's because, you know, Asian women being in relationships with white men is, is more socially acceptable amongst white people. Mm-hmm. I, I, to be honest, I think, I think that's part of it. I do too. Um, I agree. Um, but, um, you know, within my like, you know, close family, I mean, really all my family, um, you know, my, my, my grandmother will, will sometimes ask questions that are, you know, on the surface, pr- pretty, pretty ignorant <laughs> sounding, you know, yeah. asking Jenna if she's North Korean or South Korean, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, it, it comes, it comes from genuine curiosity and love. Yeah. Um, I can tell you it, 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 it's been, it's been at least from my perspective and I don't want to speak for Jenna, but I think i can speak for jenna on this to some degree Mm -hmm. hasn't been an issue yeah um you know if my father or parents had any any problem with it which i I, i'm confident they don't i think they would have they would have said something Mm -hmm. (laughs) by by now yeah yeah it's it's interesting when you talk about you know the the view from the outside right looking in when you talk about you know a a asian woman or even really an asian man um dating or being married to a a white person right um because that was actually one of the questions i had written down was you know when you know uh pre (laughs) before covid before pandemic when we were all able to go out and do things and have fun and you know go to dinners and those types of things um one of my questions actually was going to be was when you walk into a restaurant with just you and jenna um you know and there's a decent amount of people in there, whether you're walking into a bar or you're walking into a nice restaurant, did you ever find, um, or did you guys ever find where people were looking at you differently? were trying to, in a sense, figure out like why you two were together. Um, did you, did you or Jenna ever feel that way or ever get that, um, impression? So before we, we moved here to, you know, the Rochester area, we were living in the, on the Eastern shore of Maryland okay. um, in, in this town called Salisbury. And, and it was very Southern. Mm-hmm. It was very Southern and very rural. And, you know, occasionally we, we get some, like a second, almost like a double take okay. from folks. Okay. Um, we never got any comments or anything when, and it was more of just, I think, curiosity. Yeah. Or, you know, this is this is something unusual to the folks there. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you that that, and then one vivid moment. I remember we were driving back. Uh, we were driving through West Virginia in the middle of the night one time. <laughs> gas and that got a little weird, but uh, <laughs> it, we've been fortunate. I mean, it's just. Uh, tell me, tell me about that time driving through West Virginia. Well, we were. We're coming back from Detroit uh, down to D.C. and I, I was, I was in law school and Jenna was working as a paralegal for a big law firm. Okay, and um, 
Oh, actually, no, this is a little bit after that anyways. But we, um, a friend of Jenna's who's an African-American woman um, from Detroit area, she, she rode with us. Mm-hmm. And we, we, you know, we drove her and dropped her off. And then we had, had Thanksgiving. And then we, uh, then we drove back like late on the Sunday night. And so it's, you know, myself, my wife and uh, Jenna's friend is African-American. And we, we stop in West Virginia and we're in a, you know, convenience store or whatever, getting gas, getting some snacks and such. And the folks there, they, no one said anything, but they, they looked, you could, you could tell, you know, their faces said it all. It was, it was, I don't know if it was just like sort of a WTF thing for them or what. I, I, don't, I don't know, but it, a white man, an Asian woman and a black woman, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Just roll <laughs> that, out of a car with uh, Michigan <laughs> plates at like 10 o'clock at night in the mountains. That definitely yeah. threw them through a big loop for sure. Yeah, I, I'll tell you, I, 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 I was like, you know, I was like, Jenna, <laughs> let's, let's get back in the car, yeah, you know, yeah. get out of here. Yeah, and, and you know, so it's interesting you, you talk about that, right? So those are the types of moments where I, I wish, so I, I don't wish anyone to go through that, that uncomfortable feeling, right? They didn't even say anything and think about the feeling that you got as a white man, right? So now, like... These are the types of things that I I want people to understand, you know, when we're talking about, you know, not you and I necessarily, but just in general in society, when we talk about racism and we talk about the the true deep rooted issues that are going on in our society um, as a as a black mixed race man, those are the those are the types of occurrences that I experience, maybe not necessarily on a daily basis, but I can tell you probably at least at least once a month. I'm finding myself in situations wh- where people are either verbally trying to or are making me uncomfortable or just based off of their body language and their um, the way that they're looking at me, whether I'm alone or I'm with my wife or with my kid. Um, you know, I'm experiencing that on a daily on a daily or a monthly basis. And I think people need to truly under try to understand and try to listen more so than anything else about these types of experiences that people are going through you know and i think about my experiences and then i think about you know a and i can only think about like someone who's a male who is just like african-american who is extremely dark-skinned um you know, maybe is, you know, six foot five, weighs 250 pounds, can be intimidating to, you know, your first impression, your first look, you know, I think about like, what it's like for those types of guys, right, where you have no choice, because you just look intimidating, I'm not intimidating by any means. And I just think about, like, how much different my life could be, you know, if my skin tone was a bit darker, and I was a bit bigger in stature, you know, and, and seemed more intimidating to people. And these are the things that I want people who are black, who are white, who are Spanish, who are Asian, whatever you might be of a race, ethnicity, religion, um, to understand or to try to understand like what that's like, because I think that if you start to listen to those types of stories and those types of situations, you can find yourself starting to ask more more in-depth questions that will educate you. And when I say you, I don't mean you necessarily, John, but just people in general 
because I would be so curious to know what it was like for that African-American girl that was with you guys, right? Did she feel some type of way? Did she feel that maybe her life was in danger? Maybe she didn't even recognize it at all, you know? Did Jenna, who's, you know, an, an Asian-American, um, feel some type of way or or view that situation differently than maybe you did, you know? Because I think it'd be really interesting, you know, when I mentioned <laughs> you take a white man, a black woman, and an Asian woman, they walk into a bar kind of situation, right? And it's like, what did everybody feel, you know? Um, so those are the types of things I want people to really try to to put themselves in a situation psychologically, right? Physically, you can't put yourself in that situation if you're not part of that race. But to really just try to understand it and to to listen to people who are truly going through that on a daily basis. Um, and that kind of brings me to my next uh, part of this. Um, and that's talking a little bit about um, what it's like for you as a white man in today's world um, when it comes to like the civil unrest, the civil injustices that are going on, Black Lives Matter. Um, talk to me a little bit about what it's like for you on a personal level and, you know, how you feel towards that and, and you know, just what your thoughts are. So I, I the way I've, I felt about this is I have done everything I can to be an ally. Okay. Um, like you were mentioning before about, you know, I'll never be able to put myself fully in the shoes and switch roles with, you know, with, with, with the, the general, you know, the, the, the guy you described, the uh, mm-hmm. quote unquote intimidating black man, you know, yep. the dark skin, the large frame. Never. It's it just, I, I know enough. I, I feel like I've experienced enough in, in you know, I don't know, 34 years. Uh, to know that that I'm never going to understand truly what that feels like, and I think that's informed my support for you know BLM and and the, and the uh, the protests this summer and this this past fall. Mm-hmm. That you know, I'm just I'm just happy to help. You know, I'm there to assist and be an ally, and you know I've been fortunate enough to to do be able to use some of my my um education and credentials to to do that. Here and there, helping out with some stuff legally, mm-hmm. some groups here in Rochester, and you know it's 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 just it's just about showing up and and, and having people's back. Yeah. Do you think that? Um, do you, so? I asked this question coming from one of my other episodes um, with my buddy Khalil when I asked him about you know just like. Uh, educating and teaching our children right because i think that's the that's that's our that's our number one job our number one goal as fathers right is to ensure that um, the life we lead is um, a proper representation of what we want our children to grow up and and learn from and to do as they become adults um and and one of the questions i had asked him was do you think that it's what do you? What is his thoughts on raising his son, who's mixed race, on being colorblind? And then he kind of went into this whole um, description of what he thought, and that he felt it wasn't appropriate to, to raise his son 
being colorblind and that he should be teaching his child or that he is teaching his child that everyone is different, right? Whether that's your skin color, whether that's your religion, whether that's your, whatever it is, everybody is different. And that's what makes people beautiful. And that's what makes our world different. Um, and that different is good. And then he kind of went on to talk about, you know, the change and the progress that if the majority of white people in this country became anti-racist, that he believes we would see racism go away. Maybe not immediately, obviously, but after some period of time, racism would, would go away because if white people are anti-racist and speak out against that and do everything in their power to do so, then that will eliminate it. What is your thoughts on that? And do you believe that that statement, um, being a white man, uh, you know, and being in the legal field, um, what's your views on that, that statement? Well, I, uh, you know, I was, as you were, as you were describing that, I was thinking of uh, a bumper sticker I've, I've seen um, more often lately and you know yard sign it's that you know white silence s- supports violence mm-hmm. or white silence yeah. is violence and, and, and I 110% agree with that yeah I mean it, it's it, it there are many many well-meaning people in our communities in our society here in this country white people who aren't racist maybe but who who don't understand that it's going to take more than them not engaging in racist behavior to change things, it's going to take them actively being anti-racist. Mm-hmm. And to segue into the, the colorblind, I think the colorblind thing is, is absolute BS. Uh, it, 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 unfortunately, it, the, the reality of our world in this country and our society is that it, it affects just about every aspect of life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what, would we like our society to be colorblind? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Is it? No, absolutely not. Yeah. And uh, I think I think it's a big disservice to our kids to to try and and try and kind of foist that uh, myth on them. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I, I always had the beliefs because I was raised. You know, I guess it was more of how I was raised, what my beliefs were, and how I became as an adult, how confident I was, and how competent I feel I was, um, or am. And so I always viewed it as, oh, like, you know, like, and again, the way my mom raised me and and the way my dad raised me was, you know, do what you need to do to ensure that people aren't just looking at you as your skin color, right? So if I go in and I shake, you know, a dad's hand firmly and look him in the eyes and call, you know, talk to him like an adult, he's going to see past my skin color, right? Um, but I, I completely agree with you. I agree with my buddy Khalil about, you know, not just saying, oh, let's be colorblind. Because I think that that's, as I've thought about it more since I spoke with Khalil a couple of weeks ago, um, and I've had more discussions with my peers about this, I've, kind of, you know, similar to what you just talked about, it actually creates, it's putting a Band-Aid over the issue, right? It's just saying, ah, People are colorblind. Let's be colorblind. Like we shouldn't see people for their color. And that's wrong. We should see people for their color, not for as to, to fault them, 
but to see the beauty in that and to see the difference in that and that that's what makes, you know, when we talk about our country, when we talk about the U.S. and the, the different walks of life that we have, that's what makes this country beautiful, right? And I just, I, it always amazes me, and not to get to dive too much into politics, but it always amazes me when I hear about these, like, strong-willed American people, you know, who, you know, stand by their country and, you know, and whatnot, and then they talk about, like, well, if you're not if you're not from this country, then you need to get out. And you know, if you're not American and if you don't stand for the flag, then you're not American. And when I hear these types of things, I think to myself, like, what closed-minded people, um, you know, like these people are just so lost and they've they've had no guidance whatsoever, and they don't see the beauty in what's going on in our country in the positive manner. Not not you know, when I say be- like when I say. I talk about the things that are going on in our country when I talk about the differences and the collectiveness that we truly have um, amongst our communities when we see types of issues like that are going on right now, these social injustices in the majority of our communities and how much they've come together in support of that, you know? Um, so to kind of tie it back, I 100% agree with you as well about, you know, in regards to when we're talking about raising our kids um, and not being colorblind, especially when our kids are mixed race, they're, they're the leaders. They're going to be the future leaders in this types, these types of discussions um, in the change, right. And making sure that people see everybody for what they are. Um, so switching gears and moving into your work life um Talk to me a little bit about, you know, what you're, what you deal with, you know, somewhat on a daily basis. And, and I kind of want to put this out there because as I was thinking about what I wanted to ask you and how I wanted to go about this question, I, you know, I thought to myself, well, I know John's an assistant public defender. And when people hear public defender, including myself, this is probably the first time I've ever said this to you, John, I think to myself, oh my God, like. I don't know how those guys do it, guys or, or women do it where they can go out and they can defend, you know, somebody who needs a public defender, right? Because society has taught us and we've seen in movies and we've, you know, just seen in shows in general, when, when someone needs a public defender, they are the worst of the worst of the worst. (laughs) And, um, like, how could how could someone who practices law want to defend somebody who's done something so bad? But then I think back to, and I know specifically exactly when we had this conversation, it was when our friends Sarah and Alex were in town and we all went to Napa Pizza and we were all sitting outside and we were having discussions about, or you and I actually were having discussions about work um, and how you broke it down for me. And you talked a little bit about you know, what your passion is and why you do that, why you decided to go that route in, in that practice of law. So I want to see maybe if you could talk a little bit about that so people can kind of have the understanding I grasped from you when you when you spoke about that. Does that make sense and how I'm asking that question? Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. And the 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 question or the 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 thought you threw out there first, I, I think is actually it's human nature. Right. It's human nature to, to think, wow, like how how can anybody, you know, go into 
the county jail and sit there and talk with somebody accused of murder or raping a child or some some heinous act mm-hmm. and and instead of you know over the years I've I've learned instead of instead of trying to to really I guess change people's minds about that but I think it's more more helpful for for me just to describe you know how I how I view what I do yep and exactly in and unless like to kind of back off from like the philosophical and the ideological things that sort of underpin what I believe in and, and what I, what I do on a daily basis. I've been, I've been analogizing to like the, the ER doctor, right. Or the, mm-hmm. the surgeon, right. They, someone comes in and they, they got a terrible injury and, and the doctor does what they can to treat them. Mm-hmm. You know, the doctor doesn't stop and ask them and say, Hey, you know, are you a Republican? Are you Democrat? Are you, you know, whatever they just, they just jump in. And, and even people who have, uh, you know, in, in, Looking back in our history and in the in wars the United States has been in, we've always in America we've always treated captured prisoners in our hospitals and stuff like that, and so that's the way I view it. You know, it, mm-hmm. things come in, and and as far as in a personal personal level, I can tell you honestly, I have always been able to find at least something that I liked about each and every client. Mm-hmm. some aspect of them that that i thought was was positive even folks can you know charge with the most awful and horrible you know sounding offenses mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting i mean that to me is like first of all um you know because i know you it's probably a bit easier for me to say this than someone who's listening who has no idea even what you look like or who you are um <laughs> But I respect that about you because it's really hard for someone like me who's on the outside to put ourselves, when we talk about putting ourselves in, in the shoes, right? Um, I think I just found the name of, of this episode. But, um, you know, like I, I can't put myself in your shoes. I don't know what it's like. And when I try to think about it, I, I just, it's hard, right? It's really difficult for me to, you know, when you, when you talk about it, right? When you say like someone who's committed such a heinous crime or is accused of committing such a heinous crime, um, how you have to go in and essentially find that one, right, that quote-unquote one good thing about that person to be able to try to defend them. Um, And I think that's, it's an interesting perspective and an interesting point of view, especially in today's society. Um, you know, when we talk, when we talk about like trying to see the good in people, um, and trying to really like be positive. Um, I think in your line of work, you know, my last episode, you know, I brought in a good friend, Sam, who's uh, a police officer and we talked about some really difficult things and we talked about like, you know, implicit biases and we talked about racial profiling and we talked, you know, we dove into so many different topics um, and I think that the things that the police are experiencing is somewhat something that you guys kind of experience too, but in a, in a completely different aspect, obviously, right? You're not on the front lines, you know, kicking down people's doors and pulling people over and those types of things, but you're dealing with those people that they're arresting essentially. 
Um, and again, having to try to defend them in for whatever good that you're finding in them. Um, do you find in your line of work um, that there are implicit biases from um, the people that are sitting on the other side of the courtroom, um, you know, that are accusing this individual of something? Do you feel that there's implicit biases? Do you feel that there's any sort of prejudice um, or racist intent towards certain clients of yours? Have you ever experienced something like that? Um, and can you talk a little bit about that to us without divulging too much information if you if you have experienced that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, as you were as you were describing that, I was I was kind of having a little flashback to a mm-hmm. time when I was a, a brand new public defender down in Maryland, and I walk into a courtroom, and the judge is is there in the bench. He's got his robe on. He's old. <laughs> He's probably mm-hmm. in his seventies, maybe. Uh, just a, a hard sort of weathered old white man mm-hmm. and i and i walk a little closer and i see i can see his tie and his collar popping out you know from underneath his robe and i'm looking at his tie and i'm thinking no way no way and i'm looking oh, boy. closer and it he's wearing a confederate flag tie oh man and this is this is like maybe 2014 2015 and in a in a place that's you know I don't know an hour and a half away from Washington D.C., mm-hmm. Baltimore, Philadelphia, um, right there. So, yeah, it, it it's it's there and it's real. Um, I think now you see from the, I guess the more enlightened or the the more savvy. I think savvy is the right word because I don't want to give it a lot of credit, but the the racism you see now is much more implicit mm-hmm. and the system itself, the system itself is, yep. you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's playing a game. I'm in a game. That's, that's just the rules are racist. The whole thing is, it was designed to control and to, you know, be stacked against people of color. Mm-hmm. I tell you on a, on a day to day, basis um do i see a lot of overt open stuff no i don't um not not necessarily in the like in the the county court where the felonies are heard sometimes Mm -hmm. you get in these local courts which every uh you know every little town and village in new york state has its own court yep i know uh just down the road from you a few miles and uh walk it they just one of their one of their local judges had to resign because he had made some comments about uh, lynching people. Oh, you know, and this is 2018, 2019. You know, I mean, uh, 40 miles away from Rochester, New York. Yeah. You know, 50 miles away from Syracuse. This isn't this isn't the middle of, uh, you know, Montana or something. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so it's out there. It's out there. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you one thing, though, that I, that I personally experience is and and i don't i don't blame my clients is is just a a deep distrust for Mm -hmm. you know the the white public defender coming in you know i i I don't blame folks and it's uh, 
How difficult do you find that then? I mean, obviously that's an immediate wall that's put up just like similar when we think about, you know, uh, like I, I can only speak for myself when, when I'm getting pulled over by a white police officer, you know, I am by no means racist. I am the furthest from that. Um, but because of society and because of what I've seen happen to me personally being pulled over before and what I've seen, you know, time and time again, you know, my, my mindset, you know, I, I, be, I have this immediate wall put up, right? Um, so how do you combat that? Like what, what's the, you know, what do you have to go through to be able to, to break those barriers down and to be able to, to get your client to understand that you are truly there to defend them? Um, and that you're not part of this system that's trying to just continue to, to bring them down. It, uh, it's probably like one, it's probably one of the hardest parts of my job, frankly. Um, I use humor. Um, self-deprecating humor is something I, uh, I like to, I like to just sometimes just spell out the situation. Say, so, mm-hmm. you know, sir, ma'am, uh, I'm some uh, do-gooder white guy, liberal from the burbs, you know, from Brighton who drove, you know, who's out here in Wayne County here to represent you. And, you know, I wouldn't trust me if I was you, but what I tell folks is, is that, you know, talk is cheap and, and just, just watch what I'll do for you. Just, yeah. See me put the work in and those types of things and just trying to cut out trying to purposely trying try to relate or try to connect yeah and just be real with people and i feel like that's the best way to connect with somebody yeah it's actually that's a really a really good message um you know i can't relate specifically in in, in your field um you know, but when I, I was talking with a peer of mine uh, today, actually, uh, I listened to a, a TED Talks Daily um, podcast by the COO of Starbucks. Um, she's a, a black female, um, and she was talking about diversity and inclusion um, within Starbucks and, and just in the corporate world. And she said that, and this doesn't this I'm not saying that this is exactly your situation, but just to kind of relate it. She talked about, um, you know, instead of big time companies or even small companies rolling out these programs and these educational videos and, you know, these tutorials and and all this crazy stuff that you got to click on and watch and and read and do all that type of stuff. Instead of doing that, to stop that immediately and to have listen and learn talks, meaning bring in employees, bring in real people that might be above you or below you, irregardless of the level they're on, and let them talk about the true life things that they're experiencing and the feelings that they have in being true and genuine and listen to that type of stuff so that you can better learn about what's going on in society and then also to arm yourself with the appropriate information to be able to do better. And I think to be able to relate that to what you're doing, um, I think that's the same kind of on the same track, right? You're going in, you know, you're doing a listen and learn session with this client or with the clients um, about yourself and about them to be able to uh, better position the both of you um, to go into the courtroom. And I think it's important, you know, that people hear that type of message. Again, because I, 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 even now when I'm talking to you, I'm like, holy crap, like 
how in the world does John do what he does? Like, I almost want to ask you, which I know it would never happen, but I almost want to ask you to like do like a quote unquote ride along to be able to see like what it's like in your world because it's so intriguing to me. Because again, my mindset, you know, I'm not saying you're a bad person by any means, but my my mindset was always like, I just don't know how people like yourself do it, you know. Um, but again, I know who you are as a person, and I know your morals and your ethics, you know, and how you can empathize with people. Um, and you're a passionate person, so I, I get I get why you do what you do, and I get how you do it. Um, I just think it's really in- intriguing and really interesting, and I I push people to, um, you know, outside of diversity, inclusion, and equality, and the types of things that I talk about on this podcast to really. Um, educate themselves on like this type of topic and, and these types of things of like, if you don't know what people do and you judge them on what they do, you should have more conversations with them to better understand why they do what they do. Right. A lot of people think doctors are just doctors to make money. A lot of people think that lawyers are just lawyers to make money. But at the end of the day, it's not just about money. Right. Um, so I think it's a really cool message that you just kind of put out there about that and how you go about your work. Um, my next question for you, and you know, as we're winding down here, um, because you work in a system that has systemic racism built in it from you know centuries ago and decades ago, that's just continued on. For you, um, as a white male. Um, working as an assistant public defender who's defending all walks of life um, and working in that exact system that was created to hold certain people back, um, what would you like to see as change? And when I ask that question, I know that your initial response is, I want everyone to be treated equally, right? And to be given a fair chance Um but if you had to break it down for yourself and what you experience on a daily basis, what's some small minor changes that you would like to see that would help us all collectively get to the big picture of just equality for everyone? And when I say equality, I don't necessarily, I mean, yes, I'm speaking about equality in regards to like, you know, black people and, you know, Latinx people and, Trans, you know, LB, LGBTQ plus communities, you know, equality and inclusion and diversity, but also too in the system that you work in. Wow, that's uh, <clears throat> that's a great question. Um, I'll tell you, if I had to think of a, a practical sort of maybe one practical change that I would make right now, if I could just you know, snap my fingers that would be mm-hmm. to get rid of the whole concept of once you're convicted of a felony that you're forever a felon or that, you know, your convictions, your criminal record is is something that's out there and it's, you know, semi-public and it, and it should have no impact on someone's life going forward. I really firmly mm-hmm. believe that. Now, there's always exceptions. There's always situations that are that are pretty, you know, serious. But I can tell you how many young people I've met, young men, young black men, frankly, who make a mistake 
or are in an impossible situation due to poverty or to lack of opportunity or abuse from in, in the home and childhood trauma. And, you know, they make a mistake, you know, they, you know, they sell some drugs or they, they do, they have a gun, you know, it, mm-hmm. and then the, you know, they, they, they pay their debts to society, quote unquote, and then they're, then they're forever branded. They're mm-hmm. forever labeled a felon, a violent felon in some cases. And, you know, what, what do you do with that? How do you, how do you live after, after that? What, what's your motivation to, to, to participate in, in this, you know, kind of white constructed society after that. So that, that would be one thing I would change. I, I would, I would just, it, you know, I think maybe there's, there's a purpose of keeping, keeping records, of course, mm-hmm. not basing someone's worth on how many or how few and the type of convictions that they have on their record. Yeah. Um, and this interesting. And as far as, uh, you know, any, any type of thought or change. I mean, it, it's just, you, you said something before that, that really struck me. And I think it was dead on. It's that if people aren't personally impacted by something, it is so hard, so, so hard for people who live comfortable, I guess, privileged mm-hmm. lives. Um, you know, in, in privilege, I don't mean privilege like you, you just woke up one day and you're born to parents of, uh, you know, multimillionaires, whatever. Yeah. But but people who, who don't have to worry about, you know, where they're getting their next meal or how to keep the lights out of their house. For sure. You know, it's really hard. It's really hard if you if you haven't struggled yourself to understand that. And, and I never had to struggle like that. And. I'll tell you the thing that, that I think has been most useful for me in being able to put myself in the shoes of others is just shutting my big yap and mm-hmm. and just be truly be present with somebody and listen. Yep. Amen to that. I uh, I totally agree with you, and I think regardless of your where you come in in walks of life, you know what your circumstances are, whether you're living in poverty or you're living in luxury, you know, and you, you don't, you have that privilege. I think we all, you know, and that's my goal here is to just really create a table where people can come and have a type of conversation and, and, you know, and, and just listen, you know, to what's going on um, and to be compassionate, right. And to not always just turn a blind eye and just say, oh, well, it doesn't affect me, so it doesn't matter. Or, or, or say, well, you know, if that person wasn't in a gang, or, you know, then they wouldn't be experiencing these types of issues. And I think what people don't understand, and I think this is something that you experience and, and have some pretty in-depth knowledge on this, you know, and you kind of touched on that too, is not everybody, you know, has a choice, right? And, and when I talk about, you know, a choice, you know, I'm going to, sh- I'm sure there's people out there who are listening who say, well, you know, go to school and do, do the right thing. Well, like there's people out there that live in communities, uh, who don't know where their next meal is coming from, don't have a bed to sleep on, don't have clean clothes, um, don't have the ability to get to school. You know, there's all these different circumstances and economic status that affect someone's 
if we're just talking about education that affects someone's education, um, even though they have the free right to education or to the to free education, right? But free education in a very diverse city like Rochester is a lot different than when we're talking about free education in Webster, New York, right? Right. Um, and the circumstances are completely different when you take a student who goes to, you know, a city school versus a kid who goes to a school in a white suburb where there's, you know, taxes are thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars a year, you know. Um, so, like you said, like I said, you know, to just to just listen, you know. And um, as we round this out, you know, my message to everybody always listening, and and I share this on my podcast. I share this with my peers at work. I share this with people just in my everyday life. Um, you know, for me, the four most important things is to listen, to learn, to educate, and most of all, to be genuine while doing all of those. Johnny, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me tonight. Um, thank you again for diving in, you know, deep to, to some of your stuff and um, about work, about life. Um, I really appreciate it. Uh, it's good talking to you. And for those listening, um, thanks for tuning in. Uh, and we will see you on our next episode with the good and the dad. Thanks and have a good one. Thank you.